Well, let's say we are looking at two people. One of them is your boss. One of them is a door-to-door salesman. Boss, door-to-door salesman. You with me so far? Feedback is good. You with me so far? Two people, great, okay. Um, What's the difference between them? Like pretend this is a pop quiz. You gotta write a list, what's the difference between them? What's the difference in their positions? I'm actually not looking for an audible answer, but thank you, Solomon, for paying attention. I suppose there's a lot that you could say, but at bottom, friends, I think the difference has to do with how and why they try to get you to do something. They both want you to do something, right? To get you to do what he wants, the salesman has to persuade you. He has to appeal to your reason, to your emotions, to your desires. But in the end, you don't have to respond to his efforts. You can say no, with no harm to yourself, right? I already have a vacuum. Thank you very much. Your boss, on the other hand, uh, to get you to do what he or she wants, your boss simply issues commands, right? They, they demand that you do something because you understand that your boss has authority over you, both to do you good and, should you ignore his or her command, to do you harm. Your boss has given you your job and all the good things that go with it, and your boss can take it away also. Now, if he or she is a good boss, they will definitely seek to reason with you to show you why you should want to do what they're calling you to do. But in the end, there is a relationship of authority with a boss that simply does not exist with a door-to-door salesman. And so, friends, that means that there's a huge difference in how you think about responding to those two people. Well, this morning, we're going to be thinking our way through a passage in the Gospel of Mark. If you want to turn there, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, right at the beginning. And you'll be helped this morning to have your Bible open, as we do. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that passage on page 887. Page 887. If you brought your own Bible, that's wonderful. I have no idea what page it's on. Good luck. As you're finding your way there to Mark chapter 1, just let me set the stage for you with a little background. Um, So this is a gospel. That means it's an account of Jesus' birth, life, ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And it was written by John Mark. He was a Jewish believer. He seems to have had a particularly close relationship with Peter, the Apostle Peter. That's why most people think that Mark's gospel is really from the eyewitness accounts of Peter. And just like the other three gospel accounts, Mark's main goal in writing, of course, is just to make clear who Jesus is. But more so than the other gospels, Mark, in his gospel, refers to Jesus many times with this phrase, with this title, the Son of Man. And that title would have been very familiar if you were a Jewish person living at the time because it's referencing Daniel chapter 7 in the Jewish scriptures. It's referencing this mysterious, shining, glorious being who is in the throne room of God and who approaches God himself and is given by God rule and authority over the nations that will never end. And as we'll see, Mark is helping us to see Jesus in connection with that amazing Old Testament scene, because that's absolutely essential to understanding Mark wants us to know who Jesus is and how we should respond to him. So friends, listen now as I read Mark chapter 1, 
verse 15. Hear Jesus' words. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Friends, what I want us to see this morning is that Jesus is making an absolutely astonishing claim about himself and about what he had come to do. So for those of you who take notes, that claim that Jesus is making, that's going to serve as the central point of the sermon this morning. So if you want it in a sentence, here it is. The central point of the sermon this morning is this. Jesus is the center of human history. Jesus is the center of human history. And our eternal destiny, you and me, depends on how we respond to his gospel command. Our eternal destiny depends on how we respond to his gospel command. Now, to help us understand what Jesus is saying here, and so how we should respond to his words, I want us to notice two critical observations about his words. And we're going to get to those in just a second, but before we dive in, I just want to be clear about what we want to be on the lookout for this morning. So, if you are here this morning as a Christian, Brothers and sisters, you may hear Jesus' words here, and you might be thinking, I already did that. I've already repented. I've already believed the gospel. So to you, brothers and sisters, I would say this morning, be thinking about what Jesus' commands here mean for you today, like now, as his disciple, and every day. And for anyone here this morning who knows themselves to be a non-Christian, friends, we're glad you're here this morning. Because honestly, this passage is probably the most important thing from the Bible that you need to understand and to actually obey, to respond to. So, friend, I pray this morning you listen to Jesus, that you will humble yourself before him and admit that he has the right to rule over your life. And that you'll come to see the amazing love and kindness that comes behind this command that he's issuing you here. So again, our central point, Jesus is the center of human history, and our eternal destiny depends on how we respond to this command. And to help us understand that, I want to make the first observation about our verse, and it is this. Observation number one. Friends, we need to understand the context. We need to understand the context in which Jesus gives these commands. So these words here are Jesus's, the beginning of his public ministry. But if you're familiar with Jesus' life, you know that before Jesus began his public ministry, John the Baptist had been busy completing his ministry that the Lord had given to him. And if you know John the Baptist's ministry, you know that it consisted of much the same message, right? For a long time, John had been preaching in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem, and his message had been really simple. What was John's message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And a ton of people had gone out to hear him, had even been baptized by him, because they wanted to symbolize their desire to do just that, to turn away from their sin, to be washed clean of it. But, you know, if you take a minute, if you're there in Luke chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter 1, if you look down in your Bibles, and you look at verse 7, all along John had been making it really clear that he was not the point. Somebody else was going to come after him, somebody far more important, far more worthy, 
and that these crowds of people needed to be watching out for that person. And then Jesus comes out to John to the Jordan River, and he's baptized by John. And friends, at that moment, again, if you know the story, the actual voice of God from heaven speaks and says, this, Jesus, is my beloved son. Listen to him. So John's ministry is done. The son of God, Jesus Christ, has arrived. And so what does he say? What are his first public ministry words? That's today's verse. If you look again at today's verse, verse 15, you'll see that there are just two sentences. And really the first sentence gives us the context for the second one. The first sentence is meant by Jesus to help us understand who is speaking and why we should listen to him. So, so that first sentence, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. What does that mean? Well, if you were a first century Jewish hearer, Jesus' words would have likely caught your ear in a way they might not for us today. Because that phrase, the kingdom of God, that was a really rich, deep vein of meaning for those who knew their Hebrew scriptures, what today we would call the Old Testament, the first three quarters of your Bible. Because in the Old Testament, the kingdom of God refers broadly to a future time when God, the king of the entire created universe, would come and that he would fulfill all of his promises to reign, to rule over all of creation, all of humanity, in perfect justice and love. Friends, that idea is just all over the New Testament. You see that early, uh, just after the Exodus, when God has freed his people, led them out of Egypt. Before they enter the promised land, they, they, they are at Mount Sinai. And if you know that story, that God and the nation of Israel, they make a covenant, like an agreement, like a contract, that God would be their king, and as king, he would give them his law. And they, for their part, would obey his law, and they would give him thanks and praise for being their God, being with them. We are God's kingdom all throughout the prophets. So the prophet Zechariah speaks really for all of the Old Testament prophets when he says this, on that day, the Lord will become king over the whole earth. The Lord alone and his name alone. That's Zechariah 14, 9. We hear of God's kingdom all through the Psalms. So Psalm 145, verses 10 to 13, where King David says, All you have made will thank you, Lord. The faithful will bless you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and will declare your might. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. But the Old Testament also made really clear that this coming kingdom of God would feature a king who would be a man and who would rule for God. So the key passage here is 2 Samuel chapter 7. Some of you might be familiar with that already. When God says this to King David, quote, When your time, David, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I, God, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be his father and he will be my son. So friends, that's the, the Old Testament promise of the Messiah, the anointed one, the, the great David's greater son who would deliver Israel from bondage to her enemies, from her, to her enemies and would inaugurate his new golden age as God's chosen king. But I wonder if you heard what I read there from 2 Samuel 7. Did, did you catch verse 13? Listen to that again. God says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, friends, the Davidic line of kings, you know your Old Testament, it seemed clearly to have ended. In 586 BC, when Nebuchadnezzar and the mighty Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, they captured the last king of David and his whole family. They killed his children in front of him. They put out his eyes and they carried him off into captivity. So friends, it looked for all the world like the line of Davidic kings and therefore God's promise of this anointed one was over. And for a long time, the question was, is this kingdom of God ever going to come? You remember a little earlier I referenced Daniel 7? Well, Daniel was a Jew living in exile in Babylon. So yes, the, the same exile that followed the captivity of the last Davidic king I just mentioned. So later, Daniel is in Babylon, and the Lord comes to Daniel and gives him a series of visions, of, of prophecies, future prophecies of what was to come. And in Daniel 7, the Lord gave Daniel a vision of himself, himself as God, the Lord, the Ancient of Days, as he's called, seated on his throne. And then starting in Daniel 7, verse 13, Daniel says this, quote, Suddenly, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. End quote. Doesn't that sound really similar to what God had said to David? Second Samuel 7, about how this promised king's rule would be forever. And remember, this vision was given to Daniel after the line of Davidic kings seemed to have ended. It's as though God is saying, hang on, everybody. It's not over yet. I'm still at work. So this, this son of man in Daniel 7, he appears as a man, a glorious man, but a man. And his kingdom, it says, will encompass the entire earth, but there's that promise again, this, this one, this, this king whose rule will last forever, he would be a man. Friends, if you're putting all of this together, you should be asking yourself the question, how can a man rule forever? What you've got here is a picture of a massively significant figure to the Jews that they were expecting to come, this Messiah, who would finally fulfill God's promises to inaugurate his kingdom once and for all, to, to establish the reign of the anointed one, to bring vindication to them as God's people, to rescue them, to end their exile. This was a glorious kingly figure 
that they were longing for. And in their minds, they're thinking, what a glorious geopolitical and military victory the Lord was going to give us over the hated Romans. And then Jesus comes along. The son of an anonymous Galilean carpenter. This no-name from Nazareth. Nazareth, where nobody expected anything good to come from. He shows up to one of John's, you know, Billy Graham's rally-sized mass baptisms, and loud enough so that everybody can hear him, Jesus says, the time, it is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. He's, he's saying, I'm here. Me. Can you even imagine what the crowds would have been thinking at this time? I mean, Jesus probably did not look at all like what they were expecting. They were looking for a military warlord who would crush the Romans by the sword. And Jesus shows up healing people and casting out spiritually evil beings, raising dead people to life. And he preached and taught a lot. And he is saying here that he was the one who would come to inaugurate God's kingly rule over the entire earth. Friends, we want to be really clear. Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of Man that Daniel had seen with God in his throne room in glory. This eternal king of David's line whose reign would never end. Jesus is saying the time of God's kingdom had come because he had come. Friends, the Bible really couldn't be any more clear. Jesus is the Christ. He is this Messiah. He's fully man. He is a descendant of David. He was born of a woman. He grew from childhood into manhood. He grew in wisdom. He got tired. He took naps. He experienced grief. He experienced joy. He experienced frustration. He ate fish. He drank wine. Jesus was a man, and he was also fully divine. He's fully God. He's the son of man in Daniel's vision. He was always in the presence of God the Father because he's God the Son, who himself is eternally begotten from his Father, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, who is actually worthy of the Father, giving him all power and authority to reign and to receive honor and glory and worship because he is God. He's God in the flesh, the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is both. And because he's fully God and fully man, Jesus alone can be the one who would fulfill God's promises to defeat his enemies, his people's enemies, like David had, but this time to do it perfectly and finally. It's Jesus alone who can be the one who, like David's son Solomon, would reign in peace and prosperity, except he would do it forever and ever. So friends, with Jesus having come near, you and I need to understand he has begun the crushing of the worldwide spiritual rebellion against God and against his rule that began in the Garden of Eden and which flowered at the Tower of Babel and that's continuing right on today in our hearts. It's through his cross and his resurrection that Jesus has decisively broken the power of sin and Satan and death once and for all. All authority on heaven and earth 
has been given to Jesus. At this moment, he is seated at the right hand of God, reigning with all power and authority. He is actively spreading his rule through the advance of the gospel, one by one, liberating people who are enslaved to sin, held captive by darkness, transferring them into his kingdom of light. He has inaugurated God's kingdom in the hearts and lives of those who see him for who he is and who know him and who love him. And friends, one day soon, just as surely as he has begun this work, he is going to return in glory to end this work. He is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and loud voices in heaven will proclaim, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, this is the Jesus we worship. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, friend. He is the gravitational center of the entire universe. He alone is the supreme authority over all things. So my Christian brothers and sisters here this morning, you have said that Jesus is your king, that he is your Lord. Well, friends, that kingship, that lordship of Jesus in your life, how does that feel to you this morning? How have you been experiencing in your mind and in your heart that lordship, that kingship of Jesus over you? He's saved you. He's given his life as a ransom for your sin. He's raised you up into heavenly places with himself. And now, sometime in the past, you, Christian, have obeyed his initial command to repent and believe in him. Now, how are you thinking and feeling about his authority over you in your life today? Does thinking about Jesus' commands to you, his demands to you, does that bring you joy? Or does thinking about Jesus' authority and his commands does that somehow feel burdensome or oppressive to you? you know, like, like you wouldn't say this out loud, but you think somewhere deep down, you know, I might be happier if I just gave up on all of this Christian stuff. Well, Christian, Jesus doesn't intend you to experience his lordship over you as burdensome and oppressive. And it's not actually true. Those things that you're thinking and feeling, they're not actually true. Isn't it true that living under Jesus' authority is, is good for you? Maybe you're thinking about how following him lately has led to opposition in your life, has led to awkwardness, to trials, and that those things are really hard. A friend, hasn't he always been there with you in those times? I mean, whether or not you've recognized it at the time, as you have walked through difficult times in the past, hasn't he been there with you, giving you grace to endure and grace to come through the other side? And by God's grace, haven't there even been times where in trial, even during it, you have recognized that you are experiencing supernatural grace and peace and even joy right in the middle of them? And honestly, isn't the true slavery to sin the thing that causes oppression? 
I mean, has, has, has sinning, rebelling against Jesus' commands, ever brought you any actual happiness? And in the long run, as you look forward to the rest of your life, would, would trying to live apart from Jesus' right rule in your life, would that end well for you? I mean, think about what Jesus said to his disciples when they were feeling weary, tired, discouraged by people coming at them, rejecting them, thinking they were weird. What did Jesus say? Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Christian, that's, that's your king. That is your savior. This is your friend. So if you're finding living under Jesus' rule, the idea that Jesus demands things from us as his followers. If you're experiencing that as burdensome, friend, please know that your feelings do not accurately reflect reality in this case. Understand that those things that you're thinking and feeling, friend, somebody is lying to you. Recognize that your thoughts and feelings have gone astray. And go to Jesus and give those thoughts and, you, and those feelings to him. Talk with him. Cast your cares on him because, as the word says, he cares for you. Ask him to give you a clearer vision of himself so that you might understand that behind these commands that he calls us to obey, there is a heart of love for you, a heart of care for you, that his desire is to do you good, not to harm you. And pray to him. Ask him to change your heart so, so that you can really mean it when you pray. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth and in me as it is in heaven. And Christian, we also want to see here that because God the Father has given his son Jesus all power and authority in heaven and, in, and on earth, friends, we want to understand we don't have the right to redefine what God has defined for us. I mean, we can try to redefine things in ways that, that we would prefer, that reject his revealed word. But in the end, it won't work. I mean, it won't work here on earth in this life. We'll find that trying to rebel against God's good and right authority in defining for us how we ought to live we'll find that's just going to endanger our souls and it will lead to harm to ourselves and to those around us that we say we love. King Jesus has defined what marriage is. That is a relationship between one man and one woman living in a committed, loving, lifelong relationship to one another, reflecting Christ's sacrificial love for his church and his church's loving submission and obedience to him. We have no right to try to redefine marriage, and doing so is only going to bring pain and suffering to those that do that. Jesus has defined what it means to be male and female, living beings made in God's own image, equal in worth in God's eyes, yet different in form and in function, made to be complementary to one another in God's wisdom. We have no right to try to redefine what it means to be a man or to be a woman, and doing so will only bring pain and suffering. And brothers and sisters in Christ, as Christians, 
we don't have the right to ignore and redefine the terms of our submission to Jesus either. This is not about pointing the finger at unbelievers. We don't have the right to ignore or belittle our bosses or to steal from them by wasting time and taking that paycheck anyways. Husbands, we have no right to refuse to love and to sacrifice ourselves to serve our wives as Jesus does the church. Wives, you have no right to refuse to submit to your husband's God-given leadership and to respect and love him. Children, you have no right to dishonor or to defy or to disrespect your parents. Members of the Plato Baptist Church, you have no right to disrespect or to ignore the leadership of the elders that God has raised up to lead this church unless they call you to sin. So brothers and sisters in Christ, think carefully about ways you're tempted to ignore or to reject the clear teachings of God's word, and so to ignore and to reject the right authority of God himself over the life that he's graciously given to you. So friends, all that is to help us to understand who Jesus is, why he came, why he came, where and when he did. But we need to move on to the second sentence and to think about what Jesus said there. So that's going to bring us to the second thing we've got to observe in the passage this morning. So observation number one was understand the context, but now we're under observation two. Understand the command. There is a command here. Really, it's two commands, but they come together. Jesus says this, repent, command one, and believe the good news. That's command two. Just, just so we're all on the same page, what does he mean by these terms? Let's start there. Friends, to repent, biblically, to repent means to experience a change of your mind, which then results in a change of your behavior. It is both. If anyone is told your repentance happens in the mind and that's it, that is not a biblical definition. To repent biblically means you come to the conclusion that you are a sinner, and that you've chosen to live your life your way, ignoring God and pleasing yourself, and then you experience a heartfelt sorrow for how you've treated the Lord. And, and then in response, you decide to stop living in rebellion and to turn towards God, to live for him in his way. Repentance means we've come to see our sin as no longer something to, to find pleasure in and to wallow in, but something to be fled from, to, to, left, to be left behind as something that was dangerous to us and it was dishonoring to God. So when he says repent, that's it in a nutshell. And then Jesus commands us here is to believe the good news. So there's a couple things to unpack there. Let's actually start with that phrase, the good news. Christian, what is the good news? Well, when Jesus says believe the good news, friends, that, that's what we Christians mean when we talk about the gospel. It's the central message of Mark's gospel. Friends, it is the central message of the entire Bible, if you're understanding it rightly. So to put it as simply as possible, the good news is that God has made a way for rebellious sinners, and that would be me and that would be you, to be forgiven. And this is excellent news, friends, because every one of us has sinned against God. Every one of us has rejected his rule over our lives. None of us have perfectly obeyed him, 
None of us have loved him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength every moment of our lives. So we're guilty before him. And friends, God has said from the very beginning, the soul that sins shall die. And not just physically, but far worse, eternally. The final judgment, the eternal punishment of a holy and righteous God is real. And it's where we're all headed unless somebody who is sinlessly perfect and infinite steps in and bears the infinite wrath of God for us. And that's when Jesus comes in into that really bad news and commands us to believe. To believe because God has made a way, this one way, for us to be forgiven, and it's through believing in Jesus. And this does not mean believing that Jesus was a good man who taught some good things, kind of a nice guy. It does not even mean that we believe that he's God. Uh, James says even the demons believe that, and they shudder. They're not saved. To be forgiven and adopted, to be granted eternal life by God, we have to believe the good news about Jesus, and that means we have to believe that this eternal Son of God, this Son of Man in the presence of God in Daniel 7, took on flesh, that he became a man of the royal line of King David, that he would be recognized as the King of Kings. And most importantly, the most important reason Jesus became a man was so that he would become fit, suitable to represent us as the great high priest for the human race. Only then could he lead a human life, a perfect, sinless one in every way, but a human life, and then go to the cross and die for us in our place as our substitute, taking our punishment for us. And so that, as the sinless, perfect man, he actually earned God's approval. He actually kept all of God's commands. He gives us his record of perfect righteousness as a completely free gift. We would be covered in his righteousness forever. Well, friends, through belief in Jesus and that good news about him, we're made right with God. We are made inheritors of the eternal life, which God says he is storing up in heaven for us, even now. So we could talk a lot longer about the implications of the gospel, the benefits of the gospel, but at the most fundamental level, friends, this is what Jesus is commanding us to believe here. Like the Apostle Paul put it really succinctly, Romans 5.8, what is the gospel? Like somebody asks you that, what is the gospel? Here's what Paul says. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There it is. So that's the good news, and Jesus then commands us to believe it. To believe it. Now, biblically, that command to believe... This is not a new thing to Jesus. This is not a new thing to the New Testament. This is throughout the Bible. Read your Old Testament. People are commanded to believe the Lord, to take him at his word, to trust him, to know that what he said, the information that he's given us, is true, to see that it is true, to understand that it's really, really important, and then to rest on what God has said, to have full confidence in it. That, that's all that's wrapped up in what Jesus says when he tells us to believe the good news. This is the kind of belief, friends, that we exercise. Okay, so you walked in here this morning, right? 
Did you all sit down in a pew? You did, look at you. You sat down in the pew. Did you stop to sort of think to yourself, I wonder if it's going to be there when I rest my behind down in it? Did you do that? He asks non-rhetorically. You did not ask yourself that question, I hope. If you did, we should talk afterwards. No, you just sat right down, right? You sat right down. You, 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 you uh, probably unconsciously assume this pew's reality, its solidity. You have prior experience with chairs, don't you? You, you know they're solid. They're unlikely to you know, sort of vanish into thin air. So you quickly and simply trust. You sit your behind down in it without a lot of thought. Christians, that's how we are to trust the Lord. So Jesus here isn't commanding us to believe in the way a, an elementary school teacher might have said, you know, George Washington lived and was the first president. You should believe that. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is calling us to believe that 2,000 years ago, when he died on the cross and rose again, that he did that for you, individually, personally, for your forgiveness, for your salvation. This is not about mere intellectual agreement that a person lived in history and that some events happened. He's calling you to embrace all of this for yourself, to know that it's true for you. Spurgeon illustrated it like this. He said, it is not the life buoy on board the ship that saves the man when he's drowning, nor is it his belief that it is an excellent and successful invention. No, he must have it around his loins or his hand upon it, or else he will sink. That's the kind of belief Jesus is calling you to have. So there are Jesus' commands to all of mankind. Repent and believe the good news. And friends, I have to tell you, preparing for the sermon, studying scripture, it hit me really clearly. This is no new message that Jesus is proclaiming here. The message that humanity needs to stop sinning and instead turn and love the Lord and follow him in grateful obedience, that is the central message of the Bible. From Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. That's the message. Turn away from your sin. Believe the Lord. And demonstrate that by walking in faithful obedience. And as the author of Hebrews says, now in these last days, Hebrews chapter 1 refers to the time back then and which we are still living in as the last days. Hebrews says, in these last days he sent his own son to make his fullest, to make his final proclamation about all of this. And friends, now that Jesus has come, this is our last chance to do what Jesus says, repent and believe this good news. There's not going to come better news after this. So friend, if you're here as a non-Christian today, you remember I said at the beginning of the sermon that this verse might be the most important part of the Bible that you're ever going to hear. I hope you've seen why as we're going this morning because it really is true that the time has come. It really is true that beginning 2,000 years ago, God's kingdom really has come near to all of us, and that includes you. Jesus has come. This, this infinitely powerful and glorious Son of God has come to earth, and he has become a man, and he has commanded the entire human race, and friend, that includes you, to stop sinning and to come to him in faith, trusting that what he did for you on the cross was indeed for you, and that that is the only way that you can be forgiven of your sin. There is no other way. 
Friends, the Lord Jesus is commanding all people everywhere to repent because he has set, the Father has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness through this one that he has appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he provided proof of this fact by raising Jesus from the dead. God the Father has subjected everything under Jesus' feet and appointed him as head over all things. And friends, when Jesus comes back to consummate his reign, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Even the tongues of those who reject him, who have no use for him. Friend, do you think you're somehow going to escape Jesus' rule over you, is my question. Are you today, are you despising the riches of Jesus' kindness towards you, his, his restraint, his patience with you? Are you failing to recognize that his patient kindness is intended to lead you to repentance, to turn from your sin? Friend, one day soon your life is going to end. And one of the most terrifying things about that is you don't know when it is. None of us do. But it will. And unless you obey Jesus' command to repent and believe, friend, you're going to awake. The next thing you're going to know after you die consciously is to see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his splendor and holiness before you, judging you and condemning you to an eternity in hell. Friends, the good news is that God in his mercy and kindness is offering you the opportunity right now to escape that horrible end, to, to bow your knee to him today in humility and in joy as a good and a glorious king to submit to his rule over your life with delight by obeying his command to repent of your sin and believe that he came and died and rose to forgive you of your sin and to give you eternal life. Friend, won't you do this today while you still can? Please do it today. And my Christian brothers and sisters, this command to repent, I think sometimes we hear that command of Jesus to repent, and again, we, we tend to think of that moment in the past when we first repented and believed. And friends, I think that we forget that if we're in Christ, yes, there was a one-time decision to repent, to turn away from your former life, everything you've been living for, valuing above Jesus, and coming to, to the Lord as the pearl of great price and letting all that go. That happened if you're a Christian. But friends, repentance isn't something you only do that one time. Repentance is an everyday part of the Christian life. Because even though the Lord has forgiven us entirely and completely and forever, we still have that remnant of the old sinful nature in us, and we still sin. And so, friends, that means that we have daily need to repent, to, to see the wickedness of our sin, to turn to the word and to see the beauty of the sacrifice of Christ in our place, and repenting anew, like recommitting to turning away from our sin and never to come back to it. So Christian, I want to ask you, is that daily repentance of sin, turning away from it, is that a daily feature of your life? Are there ways that, that you can clearly see that your attitude towards sin has changed since you came to know the Lord? Like, where could you point in your life to say there is clear evidence 
that I have just given up trying to defend myself before the Lord, and I have taken his side against myself. Like, where can you see that in your life since you've come to know the Lord? You may have been a Christian a long time. Are there any areas of your life where you still seem just too comfortable remaining in ongoing sin? And friend, if you can think of areas like that, I have to ask you, what does that mean? I mean, are you wanting Jesus to be your savior, but you're not willing to submit to his lordship over every area of your life? Friend, if you see that in your life, I just need to remind you and myself, friend, Christian, Jesus is not going to have partial disciples. That is not a thing in the Bible. He gets all of you or he doesn't get you. Remember his words. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? What did the Great Commission say? Go and preach the gospel to all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I've taught you. Friend, there's no area of your life that you can sort of hold on to and say, well, Jesus, I'm going to maintain lordship over that. That doesn't exist. And friends, look, when, when he calls us to repent of our sin and to trust in him and to follow him, is he asking us to do anything unreasonable? What is he commanding you to do there? He's commanding you to give up your attempt to run your own life, which you regularly make a hash of anyways, right? And which he's told you, by the way, will ultimately prove utterly unsuccessful. And he's calling you to allow him who has made you to take charge of your life, to lead you and guide you and love you and to provide for you, most especially in forgiving your sins through the shedding of his blood for you. Brothers and sisters, what he's calling us to do here is eminently reasonable, not just at the beginning of our walk with him, but every day. So brothers and sisters, examine yourself for areas of unrepentance in your hearts and confess that to the Lord. And confess it to other people who can help you in that fight against sin, who can pray for you, who can hold you accountable to the changes that you say you want to make. And friend, then just obey him, repent, act on all of this. Kevin DeYoung put it well. He said this, quote, God doesn't want your bad feelings. He doesn't want your good intentions. He wants change. And Christian, I also want to ask, are you here today as a, as a Christian, maybe you've got a, a friend or a loved one, someone you really care deeply about, and they seem to have some interest in Jesus? Maybe they've even told you something like this, you know, I, I, I want to believe in Jesus. I think I, I, think I understand the gospel, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I am a sinner. That seems pretty clear. I know I do bad things, and, and it makes sense that God wouldn't just accept those things or just sweep them under the rug. I think I even understand why God might judge me for those things. But, but then the person says, but I just, I just can't, I can't pull that trigger. I can't take that final step. Do you know somebody like that? Well, Christian, if you do, maybe it's a friend, it could be a parent, it could be a child. Maybe it's been like that for a long time. And maybe you're just sort of wondering, what, what does this mean? So friends, if you understand what I'm talking about here, 
it can be really frustrating to see somebody sort of in that in-between state, can't it? Well, friends, let me encourage you in two ways. First, if, if your loved one is not, let me, let me start that again. If your loved one is seeing anything, anything good and attractive about Jesus, praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that, because it's not something that's coming from within their natural selves. That would be a work of God, even just in his common grace. Maybe not having saved them, or not yet anyway, but, but maybe by his spirit moving them towards repentance and faith. So friends, first, be of good cheer at that hopeful sign in that person's life. And then second, Christian, keep praying for them. Continue praying for them that God would extend to them the graces of repentance and belief. Because sometimes we forget, we forget that no one will ever come to the Lord Jesus Christ. They will never repent and believe unless God enables them to. I mean, the Bible says clearly that apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins and transgressions. We are haters of God who do not see fit to acknowledge him, and we will never give honor or thanks to him. And yet God in his grace and in his mercy can give both the desire and the ability to obey these commands to repent and believe. He can give those things. There is not time here for me to lay out a complete theology of the necessity of God's grace to grant repentance and faith. There's a ton of scriptures that make that really clear. We can talk more about that later if you want. But I'll put it like this. Praise God. His power to give somebody spiritual life and spiritual sight is in no way limited by that person's spiritual deadness. That is no limitation for God. I mean, in the beginning, there was nothing. And then God spoke, and there was something. Now, Jesus commanded the man with a shriveled hand to stretch out his hand. But Jesus, that's mean. He can't do that. That man could physically never do that. But Jesus told him to, and then he could. Jesus commanded a four days dead, stinking Lazarus to come out of the grave, and he did. And he saved you, right? So here's my point, Christian. Your friend, your relative who seems close to repenting and believing, and that they're clearly not there yet, pray for them. Keep praying for them that God would grant them new eyes to see the terrible nature of their sin and the glorious goodness of the good news. Because he can do it. He can do it. And we know his character and we know his word. We know he likes to do it. So friend, pray and just keep on praying. Friends, God is everything that he is perfectly and all at once. So God is love. But his love is at all times an authoritative love. And the reverse is true. His authority over us is at all times a perfectly loving authority over us. So friends, we've seen Jesus here giving this, this really final, to the human race, a final ultimate command. The command to repent and the command to believe in him for the forgiveness of sins. So Christian, we should never hear these commands and we should never present these commands to non-Christians as mere options being presented to us by a door-to-door -door salesman to which we can say, eh, 
no thanks, and just sort of merrily go on with their lives. No, Spurgeon said it like this, think not, O men, that the gospel is a thing left to your option to choose it or not. Dream not, O sinners, that you may despise the word from heaven and incur no guilt. Think not that you may neglect it and no ill consequences shall follow. God commands you to repent. That is exactly right. The fact that God commands repentance and faith is meant to highlight the necessity of our submitting to him, our obeying him. And yet at the same time, don't miss the deep and abiding love of God in these twin commands. Friends, see those commands and see God's tender care for you. See the great cost of the death of his beloved son that was made in love so that you would not die and go to judgment and destruction, but instead you'd come to find your greatest joy in him, in knowing him, in loving him, delighting in him. Brothers and sisters, hear Jesus' commands, appreciate the authority that belongs to him, and also rejoice that his command is rooted in his having saved you. See these commands as the great sign of his love for you. Let's pray together. Father, we confess to you that we think too little of you. We think too little of your authority over us. We think too little of your love for us. Well, because we think too highly of ourselves and we think too highly of this broken world. So, Lord, we pray that, Lord, that if we're here today as someone that does not know the Lord Jesus, that you would cause us to bend the knee today to see your loving authority your authoritative love. Cause anyone here today who does not know you to turn from their sins, to repent, to trust in you, and to find forgiveness, to find your eternal love and life. And Lord, we pray for those of us here as Christians. Lord, grow us in gratitude for the repentance and faith you've granted to us already. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be more careful, Lord, more sober-minded about the day-to-day -day repentance the day-to-day -day turning back to you and believing you that you call us to in love. Lord, work these things in us for our good and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.